After you've marked song number 538, uh, please be turning in your Bible to the Old Testament book of Esther. And for the next few moments tonight, we'll be casting a spotlight on that very intriguing, interesting, and compelling book of the Old Testament. Now, quite often as I, I try to select lessons that span both the Old and New Testaments, you know, all the Bible, all 66 books are inspired, and though it's true that we don't live beneath that Old Testament law, Paul still declared that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. That text of Romans 15.4 reminds us then that even those things in the Old Testament, as for example the book of Amos this morning, or tonight, at least for a few moments to reflect on some lessons from the book of Esther. Now I think I'd, it would be wise to begin perhaps like this. This introductory slide somewhat reminds you that I've often thought myself that very few, if any, books written by anybody stand higher than Esther in terms of what it offers. You know, the New York Times bestseller list contains all kinds of books that humans have written, and those books have mystery and intrigue. There are heroes and villains. Esther has all of that, and then some. And for that reason, these ten chapters in Esther, it's not that really that long a book, but yet it is so full of those things that can encourage you and me, reminding us that God is in control because we see it so often presented in this book of Esther. You'll notice on the top of that slide I make mention that indeed there's mystery, there's intrigue, there are heroes in this book, but there's also a villain that's easy to hate him. But you know, there's something remarkable about the way God's judgment upon him is such a dramatic lesson for us. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, there's irony, there's momentum swings. All of that is in this book. Well, perhaps you'll notice as we come to the bottom, I've quickly tried to list the major characters contained within it. And it all begins, of course, with the king, Ahasuerus. Now, you and I typically, as we study him in school, we know him by a different name. This Ahasuerus is the same one our history teachers call Xerxes. Maybe you remember studying Xerxes, X-E-R-X-E-S is the way it's spelled. Same gentleman. As you study him, you notice immediately something about his queen. Vashti is also, chapter 1 comes before us. But then another queen whom he will appoint, a woman named Esther. As the chapters roll on one by one, we encounter Mordecai, and we also encounter a man named Haman. Now, he will be a centerpiece of our discussion both this week and next Sunday night, so I would invite you to already make immediate plans to be back with us as we continue our study of Esther on that occasion. As we close that slide, tonight, let us in fact step one by one through the chapters highlighting some of the major attributes and features of the record, and then we'll cast a spotlight on Haman and next Sunday night even do that more justice. Let's begin then in the following way. The opening chapter of Esther begins in a dramatic fashion, and aren't we impressed with the wealth, the pomp, and the circumstance surrounding this king? Remember, Xerxes was wealthy. He was the ruler over 127 provinces of expansive empire. Not only that, you may notice that the very features and attributes of this Xerxes and the kingdom over which he reigned 
is also something highlighted for you and me in part from a study of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, there was an occasion when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And in that dream, there was an image and the arms and the chest area of that image were silver. That silver section is the same silver section described by this Median Persian Empire. Fascinating, isn't it? To see the Bible as it presents these sections, and yet they work together seamlessly. You'll notice immediately then in chapter 1, this vast empire is such that this king, Ahasuerus, held a feast, a time of celebration. Aren't you impressed? It lasted 180 days. Can you imagine throwing a party lasting 180 days? That's practically six months. Needless to say, during the course of this, the king reaches the point where he wants his queen Vashti to come and show herself, in essence, present herself to those men that are gathered. And she refuses. Now, in that day and time, that was unheard of. The king, when he gives a command, you do it immediately. But Vashti refused. Aren't you immediately impressed with her character, her integrity, and her desire to show herself in a manner and an appearance that was appropriate? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot of what he wished Vashti to do when she came. But she was sufficiently aware of the fact that this was not becoming of a woman, not becoming of a lady, and she refused the, queen's, the king's request. Almost immediately, there's a grand lesson in that for you and me today. I've highlighted it near the top of that slide. Vashti, though again very little is known about her in so many ways, she was nonetheless a woman who wished to appreciate integrity, character, and honor more than the request of me and even the king. Isn't it true that you and I today must feel at least somewhat similar to that? Always lifting higher in priority the demand and the plea of God than the request of others. Didn't Peter say it like this in Acts 5.29? We ought to obey God rather than men. You know, there are going to be times in ever-increasing fashion in the coming months, when you and I as Christians are going to be under a pressurized chamber. I say that quite frankly without fear of apology. Though none of us know what the future holds, with the Supreme Court decision in June of just a few years ago, there is going to be increased pressure on homosexual rights, other features, and quite frankly, as you and I stand with the Word of God at our back against those things, it's almost a guaranteed certainty that the pressure is going to increase dramatically. The matter of political correctness is going to make anybody, you or I, as we even in a public venue proclaim only what the Bible says, that is going to be looked upon as unlawful. And we may be taken to jail. We've got to obey God rather than men. Vashti seemingly had an understanding of what that principle of integrity and character was. It cost her her job. Sure enough, after she refused the king's request, he removed her from the queenship. She no longer had it. 
may I say to you, when you and I stand for the things of God, it may cost us some things this world has to offer, but it can't take away our home in heaven. In fact, that home in heaven is what in fact promotes and prompts us to say what we say, but always in an attitude and in an appropriate manner of love. Surely as you and I then transition into chapter 2 of Esther, she's lost her job and now you'll notice I've entitled the second chapter is this, the selection of Esther. After Vashti had been removed, his counselors suggested, you need to appoint a new queen. Let us do this. Let's search throughout all the empire and bring all the pretty, pretty women, all the virgins, and you pick the one you want to be your next queen. Well, the king thought that was a good idea. And so for the next period of time, all the ladies, all the women of the empire whom were considered to be appropriate candidates, they were brought before the king and they were given all the things they requested for purity, for their appearance, all the features and attributes that they requested, be it makeup or otherwise. And for a year... All of the bills, if you please, of these women were paid and they made themselves ready and the king would invite them in one at a time and he would give consideration to them. Isn't it interesting that of all of those that he selected or all of those that were appeared before him, he had a desire toward a woman named Esther. Now let's fill in some background about Esther. Esther was a Jew. That is to say, she was a descendant of those individuals earlier in the Old Testament who had flowed from the loins of Abraham. So much so that she could trace her lineage back, of course, to those earlier days. She had an appreciation of the law of God. No wonder now we understand that this woman, she was guided and motivated with a desire to fulfill those attributes of that law of Moses. She understood what true beauty was, and it was far deeper than just what you looked like on the outside. It's no wonder King Ahasuerus was attracted to her, for not only was she beautiful from the outside, she also had an integrity, a character, truly fantastic in so many ways. You'll notice in chapter number 2, I would ask that we ponder then about the usage of our talents, for this is another lesson, isn't it? As Esther was selected, the king chose her as his next queen. You'll notice now we have a Jew sitting in such a high rank of position as the queen to King Ahasuerus. Now that kingdom known as the Medes and the Persians, by and large, we appreciate them as heathen peoples. And yet, it was a Jew who was basically the queen at that time. Aren't you amazed at God's providence? Aren't you impressed at how He is able to work, bringing things about in such a way to carry out His will? Now that's going to take on a heightened understanding before we're finished tonight. But at this point, might we stop and make a lesson of application for you and me? Esther was willing to allow her talents to be used in this grand position of influence. Are you and I willing to allow our skills, our capabilities and talents... Or are we a silent partner to God, far preferring to simply remain undercover, saying and doing nothing? 
Didn't Jesus say it like this in Matthew 5, 16? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Esther, it seems, was in a position now such that she could even influence the king. As we leave chapter 2 and proceed into chapter 3, we are introduced to two characters. Now primarily, we learn first about a man named Mordecai. Now please be impressed that Mordecai was a diligent, earnest, and devoted Jew. He, in fact, was the first cousin of Esther. Although he appears to have been considerably older, he was the one who looked after her, remember. Earlier when the enemies had come upon the people of God, they forcibly removed a lot of the younger people and took them off captive, often killed the parents. That appears to have been true of Esther. Her parents were no more. They weren't here. But Mordecai looked after her and helped raise her. And she, in fact, greatly respected this first cousin named Mordecai. Thus, we now appreciate here was yet one more Jew in the empire. But they weren't the only two. We also quickly are introduced to another man named Haman. You might quickly keep in mind Haman was the enemy of the Jews. And that became to be that way in part due to the background of chapter 3. For we are quickly told this. Ahasuerus the king, as he in fact selected those who were high-ranking officials, he selected Haman to be his right-hand person. Haman was very influential. He in fact had, it seems, an easy point of conversation anytime he wanted it with the king. At this point, chapter 3 brings us to this. Haman had been elevated to the point that all the people, they reverenced Haman. They bowed before him and did him obeisance. You could imagine that here as Ahasuerus the king had given him that opportunity, all the other people bowed in submission before him except Mordecai. You can imagine the scene when dozens, hundreds of people would bow before him and there'd be one man standing up perhaps near the middle of the back. Mordecai, he would not bow before Haman because obviously as a devoted Jew, he couldn't. The Ten Commandments had said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, Exodus 20 verses 1 and following. And therefore as a devoted Jew... Mordecai couldn't bow before Haman. Ultimately, word was brought before Haman. Haman, do you realize everybody bows before you except Mordecai? What do you think about that? Needless to say, Haman was outraged. He was beside himself in fury. He loved the praise of men, you see. Well, at this point, he ultimately learned that Mordecai was a Jew, and he not only took out his hatred on Mordecai, but on the entire race of people of which Mordecai was a part. He set before him the task of destroying the Jewish race. And therefore, with his influence with the king, he had a decree signed by the king himself that on the 13th day of the 12th month, every Jew was to be put to death. Every one of them. Now Haman was rather pleased about the thought of giving that decree ultimately passed before the king. And therefore soon thereafter, 
letters were written and sent all throughout this expansive empire that on that day, the 13th day of the 12th month, all the Jews were to be destroyed. And not only that, the king out of his coffers was going to help pay for that destruction. Needless to say, when Mordecai heard about this, when he received the instruction in the paper, obviously he was extremely saddened. He was going to be put to death and all of those that were his Jewish kinsmen. At this point, as we give some thought to chapter 3, let's make statement of another lesson. Here was a man who hated Haman. He hated what he stood for. He hated the people of whom he was a part. Would you and I be aware of the fact there are still those motivated by the devil who despise the people of God? They hate Christianity. They hate that for which the Bible, in fact, testifies. Paul knew well about those kinds of people, didn't he? Could I direct your attention to passages like 1 Corinthians 16, 9? Paul, on that occasion, overwhelmingly asserted there are many adversaries. And sure enough, as Paul was aware of those adversaries in Ephesus, it didn't stop him in his devotion to the Lord. And it mustn't stop us either. One final passage in 2 Timothy 3.12 is a resounding reminder to you and me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Keeping that thought of chapter 3 in mind, we transition to chapter 4. Upon receiving those letters, Mordecai covered himself in sackcloth and ashes and he mourned. And you and I can understand why. How would you feel if there was a letter from the government that testified you were to be put to death on a given day and there's nothing you can do about it? The authorities have power to take your life. I think you and I would be nervous we would be rather unnerved by the character of such a decree. And needless to say, Mordecai I was. But at this point, might we appreciate the way that that chapter proceeds. Esther becomes aware of the fact that her first cousin, Mordecai, is mourning. And she doesn't yet know why. She hasn't heard word about what's in that letter. Mordecai ultimately sends information to her and informs her what has happened. She, needless to say, proceeds to ask, and as she does, of Mordecai, he gives her some advice. You've got to go before the king. You've got to plead for these people, the Jewish people of whom you're a part. And then one of the grandest statements in all the Old Testament is found in verse 14 of Esther 4. Perhaps thou art come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, maybe you have been elevated to the position of queen just so that you in this position can save your people, carry out the work of God, and preserve them in the light of this destructive letter from Haman and the king. Perhaps you are coming to the kingdom for such a time as this. Have you ever wondered about your life? Has God brought you or me into a particular place at a particular time because there's a particular message He wants us to convey? God's providence is everywhere around us. It's true, many times we aren't aware of the particulars and the details, but we can only sense, perhaps like Mordecai I did, maybe Esther, you've been brought and elevated to this position so that you can be the instrument to save the people.
And chapter 4 closes with Esther making this observation. Mordecai, there's only one problem. Unless you are invited to come into the king, it is on penalty of death that you do it. In other words, you couldn't just show up and knock on the king's door and hope to have an audience with him. For if he didn't accept you, you'd be put to death for asking. Esther says, he hasn't asked me to come now in 30 days. If I go and he does not show me favor, I'll be put to death. Esther, in a tremendous and dedicated way, says, If I perish, I'll perish. But I've got to go. How do you feel about serving God? Is it the most important thing to you? In the book of Revelation, as we studied on Wednesday night not long ago, we learned that those precious saints of the first century, though difficult, though challenging, and quite often, though it may cost them their life, they were admonished among all else to be faithful. You and I must feel the same way. As you and I close that fourth chapter, doesn't it highlight one more thing? Did you notice the Jewish people had an enemy? He was a man named Haman. Now clearly that was prompted by the devil. But today, sometimes you and I as Christians have our enemies. I realize on occasion that seems so perplexing. We're people of love, people of mercy, people who love the book, and people who strive to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Why would we have any enemies? But as I mentioned before, there are people who sometimes are selfish, people who are jealous, people who sometimes are motivated with envy, people who sometimes will find it far different, and they don't take pleasure in Christianity. Sometimes we have enemies too. May I say that when we do, we must nonetheless use the Bible to guide how we react to them. We cannot hate them back just because they hate us. After all, that wouldn't be becoming of a Christian. How did Jesus treat His enemies? You and I remember, though they nailed Him to a cross, He nonetheless, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, Luke 23, 34. And wasn't it true that our Savior paid the price that the very ones who killed Him could ultimately go to heaven? In Revelation 1, verses 5 to 7, even those that pierced Him will see Him when He comes back. And isn't it amazing then to contemplate that as you and I are motivated by the matter of truth, even to our enemies, we don't treat them the way they treated us. We treat them the way we wish they had treated us. Matthew 7, verse 12. At that point, you and I close the fourth chapter and we move into chapter 5. At this point, Esther does go in before the king and thankfully he dips the scepter before her. He does receive her and shows her favor. And he asks, Esther, what may I do for you? He knows she has a request. She first invites him as well as Haman that they might in fact enjoy a banquet with her. And so he is happy to do that later that day, a meal if you please. And you'll notice, at this point might we say this, Haman's evil scheme is progressing. Remember, he was going to kill all the Jews on the 12th month, 13th day. At this point, as those events proceed, it looks as if it's going to happen. You can only imagine how frightened the Jews must have been as the events appeared to be progressing. 
I would ask you to think about a lesson. Sometimes, sometimes in our world, it looks as if evil has the upper hand. It looks as if the devil has, in fact, the controlling power and factor. It looks as if good is not going to prevail. May you and I as Christians know better than that. On those occasions, just like it did in the book of Esther, when it looks dark, it looks bleak, God's tomorrow is brighter than today. It's going to ultimately come out. God's will is going to prevail. But it looked dark along the way. And in the book of Revelation, again, it looked dark along the way on occasion. Some of the saints were beheaded. They lost their life because they were true to Jesus. But you know, those same saints in Revelation 20 are sitting on thrones with Jesus Christ reigning. You see, it worked out good for them. May you and I notice that no matter what our federal government puts into law, the time may come that Christianity is a very hard thing. You realize currently the tax laws are somewhat in our favor. You know, churches, we were exempt from certain taxes. We're exempt from certain other things. The day may come that that is no more. And I'm persuaded it likely is not going to be very far away. It doesn't change anything about what you and I do to be faithful. It just means that sometimes evil is going to look like it has the upper hand. But God's tomorrow is brighter than today. As you and I close that fifth chapter, may I ask you to notice Psalm 73. In that chapter, David, he lamented the fact, God, it looks like the evil is winning. It looks like the evil is prevailing. But finally, before that chapter is over, David realizes God's Word is ultimately going to prevail. It's only temporary. It's only for a short while that their prosperity appears to be. And yet those that are true to God have eternal prosperity. Fascinating to think about lessons like that, isn't it? As we close that slide and proceed to the next one, we come to chapter 6 of the book of Esther. At this point, may I ask you to notice, it isn't accidental, but the chapter begins in a fascinating way. There happened to be a particular night that the king was restless. He couldn't sleep very well. Have you ever had a night like that? Maybe the events of the previous day were resting on your heart. Maybe for other reasons, you just weren't able to sleep well. And on that night, he couldn't sleep well. He called for the records of the empire to be brought, and they were read before him. And among those records, Mordecai and his act of valor was listed and the king asked, what's been done to this man so that he could be honored for this valor? And they said, why, well, nothing was done for him. You see, there had been a previous time when Mordecai had become aware of a conspiracy plot against the king, and he made that plot known, and the conspirators were put to death. You see, the life of the king had been saved. On that sleepless night, that record was read. Out of all the records of the empire, and no telling how big the book was, that happened to be read. Notice again God's providence at work. It wasn't accidental. Amazingly enough, as that chapter goes on, one of the first things then the king does is, he asks his counselors and he asks Haman, what ought to be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? 
And sure enough, Haman was quick to say, well, he ought to be given the king's apparel. He ought to be ridden on the powerful horse. He ought to be brought through the town so that everybody could be aware of who he is and what he did. The king liked that idea and said, I want you, Haman, to do that to Mordecai. You give him the king's apparel and you put him on a horse and you lead him through town, making sure everybody's aware of the honor that he's due. Haman felt sure before that started that he was the one to be honored. But it was the king's decree for Mordecai. You notice how the tables turned. The very one who thought that he was the irreplaceable one, that he was the one to be honored, was the very one who the king wanted to honor somebody else. You notice one more thing. In his interest to get rid of Mordecai, Haman had had a gallows built. Now you and I know what a gallows is used for. It's used for hanging people. The person stands there and a rope's put on their neck and the floor is dropped out from under them and they hang in a public way as a punishment for crimes they had committed. Haman had a gallows built. It was 50 cubits tall. You can imagine a gallows standing 75 feet tall. Seven and a half stories. And he was going to have Mordecai up there on it and he was going to kill him in public. And the king was going to approve it. He had the plan all worked out and it was finalized in his heart and mind. But things take another dramatic turn. Remember earlier I mentioned Esther had called Haman and the king to a banquet. And when they arrived, she said, I want you to come to another supper, another banquet. And sure enough, the next day, they were so excited to come, and particularly Haman was. Haman, you see, was able to hobnob with the king and queen and nobody else. He felt very honored. He felt like a man of influence and prestige. And sure enough, at this next banquet, the king again says, Esther, what do you want? What is that which is on your heart? Even if it's half the empire, I'll give it to you. And she said, I only want my life and the life of my people. There is an enemy, you see, who has dictated my death and the death of all of those who are my kinsmen. And the king was beside himself. Who would have the nerve to require the life of my queen? Who would have the nerve to have such an edict as this? And it was the lesson text that Joe read earlier. In Esther 7, verse number 6, Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. She identified him right there. And you can imagine as the mouth of Haman drops open, he thought he had a foolproof plan to kill not only Mordecai, but take out all these people whom he despised. And now, in the very presence of the king, she identifies him as the one who had attacked the very life of his queen. And the text is quick to remind us, he sensed the king had it out for him at that point. As you and I note this, let's note another lesson. It's at the top of that slide. Evil will never ultimately prevail. Haman had a plan, but the plan failed. Haman had a plan and he thought that in his position it was absolutely able to never be thwarted. But it did not succeed. And one more time, think about the grand lesson 
of God's providence. Haman's plot was foiled, and amazingly enough, the king on that occasion gave the decree, hang him! And he was hanged on the very gallows he had built for Mordecai. Talk about the greatness of the plan of God. Here was a man who thought that he could bring about the destruction of these people. And God had protected them and provided for them and determined that through them the great Christ would come into the world. Let's pause for a moment to ponder the providence of God. It seems to me, and probably you would feel likewise, that among the books of the Old Testament, few would rank higher than Esther as a dissertation on the providence of God. What about the king just happened to read about the chronicles of Mordecai that night he had a sleepless night? Again, it wasn't accidental. What about the building of the gallows like Haman did? And it just so happened the next day that Esther had the banquet. What about that circumstance in which Mordecai overheard the conspiracy of those two who were going to kill the king? And he just happened to tell the right people and it was recorded in the Chronicles of the Empire. What about this choice of Vashti so that she would be removed and Esther would occupy the throne at just the right time? Do you suppose all of that was just accidental? Do you suppose it was all happenstance? Oh, I think we know better than that. The providence of God working among the members of the human family. May you and I never suppose that things are just arbitrary. Paul felt that way too, didn't he, in the book of Philemon. Here a slave had run away from his master and it just so happened he came across Paul in a Roman prison and Paul converted him to Christ. Paul didn't believe that was accidental. Remember, he told Onesimus, as well as that letter directed to Philemon, maybe he ran away at the right time so that his soul could be saved. Isn't that a remarkable consideration? It is with that in mind. We close that slide with the last three chapters. These chapters are relatively brief. And you may notice in them, after Haman was killed, the Jewish people were saved. The king gave a decree. Now, under Persian law, you couldn't revoke a law once it was made. So the king couldn't take back that law that allowed people to kill the Jews, but he could put in place another law that gave the Jews the right to defend themselves and that gave the Jews the right to protect themselves, and that they did. And the text indicates not a single Jew lost his life, not one. They were all preserved and protected. Esther had done her part. She had come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe it is in that lie. We learned then that there was a feast put into place. And may I say to you, the Orthodox Jews to this day celebrate it. It's called the Feast of Purim. The Feast of Lots, in other words. And it was put in place after the preservation of the Jews so that they could celebrate their protection. And again to this day, that feast is still celebrated. Now, as you and I close that slide, we do so by arriving at the ending point for tonight's lesson, but it only whets our appetite for the study of Haman more clearly next Sunday night. Let's close it by noting this. We've studied an overview of the book of Esther. 
We've done that by appreciating this. In these ten chapters, we find the progression. The progression about good on the one hand, evil on the other. And ultimately, the good prevailed. And I put in quotation marks part of that verse that we use as a lesson text tonight. Esther made the statement, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. You see, evil is never going to win. And so if you and I are foolish enough to follow it, to live by it, we're only driving nails in our own coffin. Eternally. Tonight, if you and I, upon analysis of our life, aren't pursuing the good, remember that Peter told all of us in 1 Peter 3, verse number 12, seek the good and do it. Are you and I seeking it, living by it, making wise choices on how we talk and where we go and the kinds of things we think about every day? You know, if we fill our life and our heart with those things, we will be a powerful instrument for the goodness of Christianity. It might be tonight someone in the audience, upon consideration of your life, would wish to make a change. Maybe you have never become a Christian. Don't you want to? It's the finest life by far that anybody can live. For we have Jesus Christ, our elder brother, at our side, and we all are striving to serve our Heavenly Father. Don't you want to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ? Romans 8, 14 to 17. Don't you want to appreciate the grand prize of John 14, 1? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. If your name's not in the book of life tonight, make it so. Or better yet, allow Jesus to make it so. You need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. Repent of your sins, command it of us in Acts 2, 38. Confess the sweet name of Jesus as a Son of God, Mark 8, 38, and then be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. As that's commanded in 1 Peter 3, 21, we delight at the thought of it, and if we could help you in that way tonight, it would be an honor for us and a joy for you. But if you have become a Christian at some time, and maybe you lost sight of the providence of God, Maybe this study of Esther in a quick way has reinvigorated your desire to be right with God. You realize what you must do. You've got to believe in the error of, the, of your way. You've got to repent of those sins. And of course, you've got to make confession of them. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. And if we could pray to God on your behalf tonight, we'd be happy to do that as well. If we could help in any of these ways, this hymn of encouragement has been chosen. We'd like to invite you to come just as would the Christ, at once while together we stand and while we sing.